dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Rima Vesley Flad. She's the author of Racial Purity and Dangerous Bodies, Moral Pollution, Black Lives, and the Struggles for Justice, published by Fortress Press in 2017. She's the visiting professor of Buddhism and Black Studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where she teaches classes on Buddhism and social justice. She formerly taught classes in philosophy and social theory and directed the Peace and Justice Studies program at Warren Wilson College. In addition to teaching classes on Buddhism in the U.S. context, she writes and teaches on mass incarceration. For several years, she directed the Inside Out Prison Education Program, a partnership between Warren Wilson College and the Swananoa Correctional Center for Women. In this discussion, we explore her latest monograph, Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition, the Practice of Stillness in the Movement for Liberation, published by New York University Press in 2022. Dr. Wesley Flad talks about Black Buddhists' teachers' insights into Buddhist wisdom and how they align Buddhism with Black radical teachings, helping to pull Buddhism away from dominant white cultural norms. So we're here today with Dr. Rima Wesley Flad. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're very excited to have you on. And so before we get started in talking about your book, could you explain to us how you came to this project? Um, I'm so excited. This is different for me. So I'm really excited and I may have a lot of questions more than what I sent you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, please go ahead and tell us how you came to this project, what sort of um, concerns, ethical, personal, that drew you to the questions in Black Buddhists and the Black radical tradition. So why this project? Well, thank you, Fatima, for having me this morning. This project, I would say, is a life's work. In many ways, it arose from my first book, which looked at the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was so clear, while in Ferguson and in other places, Charlotte, North Carolina, and even here where I am living in Asheville, North Carolina, that that the Black church, as it had been involved in the civil rights movement, was actually not front and center in quite the same way. And so I just had questions about what spoke to the vanguard activists. And what was so interesting, while especially being in Ferguson, was to hear those activists talk about meditation and healing justice and more contemplative practices. So that started my inquiry with regards to Buddhism and just wondering, could Buddhism as a set of frameworks and practices as a set of doctrines that is that are 200 or 2,600 years old, could those speak to these activists? And 
I decided to go out and talk to Black Buddhist teachers who were my teachers or who were writers or just by way of networking and and informal connections sort of in my in my milieu, on my radar. So I ended up interviewing over 40 Black Buddhist teachers and long-term practitioners, which I defined as being um, meditators of more than 10 years. And then I included the voices of another 30 teachers and long-term practitioners. So there are over 70 voices in the book. And those voices are of different lineages, but they come back to a central teaching, which is the teaching on how to turn towards suffering, how to see what is valuable in suffering, and how to work with that suffering in skillful ways. And this, to me, seems invaluable for people who have suffered such intense intergenerational trauma and who are still expending, I would say, most of our energy confronting systemic injustices. So we put a lot out. We take a lot on as, I would say, a community, broadly speaking. And we have to. We have to for survival and for the protection of our children. But a central message in this book is to not give everything away and to also expend some of that energy on healing practices and really working with what I would argue, and I think many would argue, has become built into ourselves, like we have so much reactivity. And if we look at studies in epigenetics and, um, you know, other disciplines, psychological disciplines, we can see that we have these ways of adapting to so much external suffering, externally imposed suffering, so much trauma, and they don't serve us. Those ways of being don't serve us. And so what what does serve us in terms of healing ourselves and our families and our communities? And, and my argument in this book is that the practice of Buddhism and the doctrines of Buddhism can serve that healing process. I will say, I think many of the teachers in this book have to look outside of Buddhism to make it relevant that it's not only Buddhism as a set of doctrines and practices that the Black radical tradition, that Black feminism, even the Black church, um, different political movements, the Black power movement, for example, the Pan-African movement, all of those are also very important resources. But combined with the doctrines and teachings of Buddhism, it's really powerful. I think Black people can start to deconstruct really damaging narratives and say, wait, these are inherently unstable and they're actually not true. I think there are ways of working with our bodies, somatic practices that are part of the Buddhist tradition that are really powerful and that really do help us to move from reactivity to a, a deeper inner stability. And so, so my argument is that Buddhism, perhaps for some alongside the church, which is still very important, but Buddhism is a really important resource. And, and I'll just say in my own life, and I see this in people around me, has been a really powerful practice and set of doctrines in terms of starting that healing process. 
And I do um, want to thank you for putting in your own life in there too. <laughs> I think that was, um, it was powerful. It was, it required vulnerability. And um, I would like to say my thanks because that's, now it's in a book and it's, you know, it's for everyone to read and be a part of. But you do show how also this affects you, which there's something about subjectivity when included in research that draws me. I'm like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of a connection. And so you mentioned some things that I know we're going to get to, but before we dive into deeper questions, like, you know, how does the Black radical tradition inform this and how it, where, how the Black Buddhist teachings, you know, look outside, I think it's important for us to um, understand the language that you are um, conveying with us and it's some language that you've put forward or such like the dharma sangha there's there's also a bunch of others um but i think language is critical in order to under to first like enter the milieu that you're speaking to us in so could you explain to us some of those key terms which could help um further understand where how some of these practices are being um you know, like act it out. Yes. So it's important to know this term dharma, which broadly refers to teachings within the Buddhist tradition. And initially it was an oral tradition. Um, the initial teachings were memorized and then written down approximately 600 years after the Buddha's death. So dharma refers to some of those early, they're called suttas, um, those early teachings. And, and Dharma refers to these broader teachings on the inherent instability of all phenomena around us and the reality that suffering exists and um, many, other, many other doctrines. But, but Dharma is important um, and hopefully a much more familiar term, even though it's initially a Sanskrit word, and sometimes interchanged with the Pali term Dhamma. Uh, so they're closely related languages. And then Sangha refers to community. And sometimes it refers only to the monastic community, but in contemporary times, it also refers to lay communities, but essentially a community of practitioners, Buddhist practitioners. And let's see, what other term is useful, do you think? Um, at some point, I just had to look at how you describe the story, <laughs> storytellings where I was like, okay. But those two were definitely ones that like helped me personally um, when reading the book. Um, and then I may not remember the words, but then this, I remember the feelings of the words you present. I hope that makes, makes sense. It's like, I can't remember the word, but I think the one that I can't forget or that sticks with me is when you're speaking about a ritual um, and how ritual, what connecting ritual and land is quite important. And that's something that these practices find a way for us to heal by connecting with the land and how, you know, connecting it to like IFTO therapy um, 
the mm-hmm. indigenous i don't want to get this wrong but i think it's indigenous focusing oriented therapy yes, yes. yeah so i thought the, yeah. these were all uh, new terms for me <laughs> you know like wisdom and like dakinis i was like okay so we can <laughs> there's a like i can't remember the word but there's a feeling that comes with these words that that hit which mm. it's it's very interesting for me. I was like, and I've, I haven't really read much on Buddhist, but Buddhism. So I'm just like, this is um, connecting it to Black radical tradition. Kind of helps see how we can do this healing and um, really have this intergenerational trauma conversation. So that that spoke to me. Mm. Yes, and there's another word that I think is also important, which is metta which is translated as loving kindness. And a big point that I make in the book through through these interviews and through these teachers is that the practice of loving kindness or compassion is really important for resourcing ourselves. Mm-hmm. So metta is a phrase that I also hope gains a lot of traction in the United States um, because that orientation towards compassion towards ourselves and towards others is so foundational. And so before we um, get to the to that loving part, you mentioned how, and I was really interested when you draw out this, like how there was a split in this moment of time of like, if we look at the genealogy where white practitioners married um, psychology with Buddhism um, dismissing cultural practices and that kind of had an effect as to how this was being taught and um, what would you call those who are students would would they just be called like Buddhist learners or or students yeah, maybe Buddhist practitioners or okay. th- that would that would be a term that um, I think is fairly neutral and an inclusive mm-hmm. yeah okay because I, I was like, are we students? Are we learn? But okay. So, the, <laughs> but um, so when you talk about the split, where um, how black traditioners operate, practitioners operate versus how um, white practitioners operate, one is more involved with culture, and the other not so much. There's more, um, maybe there's more psycho- psychology, but in a sort of an abstract sense, whereas black practitioners had to have in culture as a way of building community it w- it couldn't just be an individualistic thing so that was my understanding of it is is that what you were trying to lay down yes actually we were just talking about this in my class last night i'm teaching a class called buddhism race gender and sexuality this mm. semester and we spent the first two classes talking about the the contexts that erase a race, especially Asian and Asian American Buddhist voices, um, and then also the response of people suffering intergenerational trauma in this broader context of white supremacy. And so really examining the backdrop, and part of that backdrop is the erasure of Buddhists of color, primarily Asian and Asian American Buddhists, but also Black Buddhists, and saying that in that erasure, there is a kind of individualism, there's a a kind of marriage with psychology that I would say 
can be useful to people of color, to practitioners of color, to people broadly. But in that more scientific approach, there's a kind of downplaying of any kind of um, ritual affects that really do highlight specific cultural patterns and relationships. And, and one of those, and this is actually what our class was on last night, one of those aspects is honoring ancestors. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments I make in presenting the syllabus is that we have these ways of pushing against and uh, you could say act, act, um, acting against that which is painful, which is oppressive, right? We, you know, as I was saying initially, we turn so much attention outward, but it is my observation and my experience that in Asian and Asian American Buddhist communities, as well as in Black Buddhist communities, there is also a privileging of this fact that we come from somewhere. And to really know that and to honor that, to honor our elders and our ancestors. You know, that comes from our indigenous traditions that are worthy of celebrating. And so importantly, it, especially I would say for Black Buddhists, it is biological, but it's also spiritual to really highlight and honor our spiritual ancestors. Even if we didn't know them personally, we have their words, we have their biographies, we have the fact that we stand on their shoulders. And for many of us who are of African descent in the diaspora, we, we don't know our lineages. And I was actually just, you know, you know this already from reading the introduction. And I was talking about this last night, that that is so deeply painful still. You know, we have the fact of the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. and the auction block and what that still means for us today as a people, as a people with deeply fragmented histories. So you may not know our biological ancestors and we also may have ancestors who have caused us pain. And that is real. Mm -hmm. That is something to, to grapple with and to acknowledge. And we also do have many, many more ancestors who are looking out for us and and so in honoring those ancestors, you know, for me, it's people like James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, so many poets and, and grandmothers I've claimed along the way as I've lived my 47 years. So it, it, it's important to say that we stand on the shoulders of people who have worked on our behalf. And it's also important to say we come from somewhere and that exists on many dimensions. And that, to be frank, is missing in what we call white convert Buddhism, mm -hmm. that acknowledgement, that honoring. There's much more an emphasis on working with the mind, on working with the breath. You know, and, and those are useful practices. Mm -hmm. I don't dismiss them. That's how I started to learn these practices. But it's also not enough. It's not the fullness. It doesn't acknowledge the Sangha and the lineages. And it's very different from the way that Buddhism is lived out in, in countries in South Asia and East Asia, where family and ancestors and the honoring of, of those elders and those ancestors is paramount. So a lot 
was left behind when Buddhism was brought over to the United States. And yet I do find that Black practitioners, especially because of the sense that we have to look out for each other, we have to acknowledge our common oppression and work on behalf of one another, that we have a really different experience of honoring our elders and a very different orientation towards honoring our ancestors. And I would say, and I'd argue this in the book, that it actually, that our practices, Black Buddhist practices, mirror Asian Buddhist practices Mm -hmm. in very specific ways. And that is one of those specific ways. See, in the chapter of honoring um, my ancestors, you do make that, you know, the claim of how in these spaces, the need to honor, you know, um, lineage, which is missing from um, the white spaces. And I think the other question I had, which you you talk about specifically in that chapter where how some ancestors may still be drooling, dealing with their own trauma. And so the ability, we may not be able to access them in the ways we want to because they can't give us the wisdom we may need um, because they're still dealing with their own trauma. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? And it's, you know, you you pretty, well, for me, my, my takeaway was we're all dealing with traumas differently, but I never really thought that also ancestors are dealing with traumas differently, mm-hmm. um, which puts them at different levels and different phases. Yeah. It comes up every time I teach in Dharma circles, and it came up in my class last night. And I, I can speak to this personally, but also from a more anthropological standpoint. So, and I'll start with that actually. So there are a number of people. So I'm going to actually highlight the name Lama Rod Owens, who has written a book called Love and Rage. And he has a chapter and a section on ancestors. And he speaks to this very specifically. So I've likely got some of these ideas from him and his work. But, um, but it is to say that our ancestors live complicated lives and have their own healing processes. And some of them make great progress and some of them do not. And some of them have caused great harm. And I think this is important to recognize for us as people of African descent. And I'll actually, I'll just speak personally about something that happened this week, which is, um, well, you know from the book that I did not grow up with my father. I actually am writing a new book on the Dharma of James Baldwin and Audre Lorde. And I decided as part of this book to research my ancestral lineage, my uh, paternal ancestral lineage. And so I started this project and I decided I would write my biological father a letter. It's been 40 years since I last saw him. And I wrote the letter and mailed it in September and then had started a new job and I was really busy and I was working on the book and then there was a crisis at work and I was really busy. And this past Monday, I learned that he died just 11 weeks ago, 11 weeks ago yesterday. And I had such, I've been in this state of grief all week. I've had such, and I'm still at it. I, I, I'm really um, dealing with the fact that there's a lot that's very deeply unhealed, you know, the, the very fact of abandonment and, and not knowing if I was really a wanted child and certainly feeling that I wasn't 
a priority, at least enough to stay in my life and my brother's life. And it's just, it's very harmful. It's really deeply painful. I've had a lot of tears this week. There won't be any reconciliation. And he was harmful the last Mm -hmm. time I spoke to him. And part of what this practice serves, and this is ancestral work in a deep way, is having some really deep compassion for the hardship he experienced, which was real. Mm. He, um, he grew up so in a fragmented family. There was a lot of hardship, the, at least the little that I know. The little that I know was that there was a lot of hardship in his early life and in his adult life. You know, I am aware of addiction and poverty and and I think there was a deep lack of capacity, mm-hmm. a deep lack of capacity to stay and to love. And that is real too. And I don't think that was healed because the obituary I found that was sent to me by my sister-in-law who has been helping me with this research. The obituary doesn't mention any relatives. There was no service. Mm. It seems it, it was a an obituary that came out of a cremation center that was considered affordable cremation. Mm. There was something so isolated just in the announcement of his death. And I can't help but think this is consistent of what I know about his life. Now, there are huge gaps, and maybe I'm making assumptions, but he didn't try to find me, and that is harmful. And yet I do have a practice of refuge in which I can say, okay, and there's so much more. There's something unhealed, but can I at least turn towards that and not shut down? And I think the message of this next book and the message that I started off saying today is, can we just turn towards that, that harm, that tremendous suffering and stay with it instead of needing to mask it or to shut down or to repress it so that we do more damage to ourselves? But can we actually stay open, really feel our ways through it and be skillful, be compassionate? And that's what I'm trying to do in this situation of acknowledging his death which is really hard for me. But it is an example of, of turning towards an ancestor who was harmful and mm. saying, and there's so much more as well. There's so much more. So ancestral work is complicated. Someone like Lama Rod Owens would say that many, many, many of these teachers who have done really intensely painful and difficult work would say that in the third chapter, the chapter on ancestors, you may remember the story about Devon Berry, mm-hmm. goes to plantations and meditates and mm-hmm. you know, sits in slave quarters and looks on cotton fields and really confronts mm-hmm. generations of deep suffering. Mm-hmm. And there's something so powerful in the capacity to really turn towards that and be open to that and mm-hmm. feel through that, to give ourselves permission to feel, but also have the skills mm-hmm. to do that. I think that's incredibly powerful work. And I think that that story, I read that like a number of times because it's not something you can read and just, I don't know, I couldn't just move on to the next paragraph. But um, it's 
when I was told about meditation, <laughs> when I was, I remember the first time I was like, so you just sit and breathe and think, oh, like, okay. Um, <laughs> but then it's, you know, I tried to think about images or it's just the street that I'm, you know, staying on. What was it like? I, I don't know. That's kind of how I meditate. What was it like for a black young girl my age, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, taking into like really absorbing my environment. And I think you, you do use the word absorb. And I'm like, that's, that's for me, that's what meditation is. It's mm. you absorb everything around you mm. and you take in the good and the bad, but you, you have to sit with the bad. Um, the bad in your mind, the bad around you, because you're walking in it. Someone walked in it before you. <laughs> um, it's, um, but it's there. And sometimes I feel like we're we're ghosts repeating the same things other people have done, and then we do the same mistake. And I always have this image of like an ancestor just looking down and being like, "I tried to warn you," <laughs> or like, "I tried to communicate. You blocked me out." Um, but like, it's. Like we've been here before in some sort of weird and odd way um, in, in a different universe, in a different timeline. But um, that that was very powerful of sitting. What, what would it look like to just sit <laughs> in a plantation and just sit there? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that bring, that'll bring something out of your mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, I'll have to send you a conversation I did with Devin a few months ago where he goes into great depth about that. I'll send that to you. <laughs> I'll make sure to uh, to prepare my mind. That's something that um, <laughs> is necessary. But when, you, when you're speaking about your experience and even earlier in the other discussion, there's also this sense of interiority, this um, saving ourselves, not always having to expend. Um, and, you know, you bring in Kevin Kwashi's The Sovereignty of Quiet. So can you can you speak a little bit more about interiority? And it's interesting. So when I sent you these questions, I had a it was before I had my class last night on critical theory and we were discussing um, Toni Morrison's Nobel Lecture. And she's also talking about interiority. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a connection here. <laughs> I didn't mean to make, but... Morrison also discusses interiority and how when she's looking at the slave, slave narratives, there was no interiority that, you know, we could access, that we could see, but she made a way for us to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, it was there, but we probably just didn't hear it through abolitionist texts. Um, so, so, yeah, there's this interiority kind of like echoing through the scholarship if you make time to hear it. And sometimes it's like either writers or scholars are kind of saying, save yourself. <laughs> it's like like these little whispers of like, save yourself, like keep a little piece of yourself. <laughs> but what do you think, you know, this project and um, this, this um, I guess this concept and notion of interiority brought about for you? Well, I do love Kevin Kwashi's yeah. book and his argument. <laughs> you know, that there's so much more than our activist protest-oriented selves. And as someone who spent years and years in vanguard activist movements and organizations and went through cycles and cycles of burnout to be affirmed as a more introverted person, a more contemplative soul is 
really refreshing, especially in an academic text. So I really do love that book. And I think there are other writers, you know, I, you know, to be honest, I think we get it in someone like Audre Lorde, who mm-hmm. we think of as this fierce black woman, feminist, mother, warrior, poet, that's how she self-describes. But if you look at her journals, mm-hmm. if you look at her poetry, even, you know, James Baldwin, the same thing. He was, you know, he called himself a witness, but was very involved in the civil rights movement and sought to support students um, in the Black Power movement. And still there was this depth of turning inward. And so I love that you see that with Toni Morrison's work. I mean, I think I think Beloved and Sula you, mm-hmm. and Song of Solomon, all of those, you could absolutely take those apart and find Dharma teachings and you know, the depth of... Yes, not, and not just save yourself, but how much the community matters mm-hmm. and, and what we were pointing to with ancestors. There's how much the community matters. I think we, we get that in all of her novels, at least the ones I've just mentioned. The Bluest Eye even, yes, I would say that's true as well. There's something about being able to turn towards ourselves and just witness what's there with some really deep compassion. We'll say, I think that interiority for many of us who grew up internalizing hatred, the white hatred that surrounds us, the rejection, the messages of inferiority, however they're conveyed, we internalize that. Like, you know, we swim in those waters as children. You know, we grow up thinking we should look differently or we're just not quote unquote enough. That's a lot to work with. Mm. And we don't really have the tools and, you know, that are taught to us or that we've internalized simultaneously to just step back and say, well, that's not true. (laughs) There's nothing real about those messages. However, they are articulated. And so I think that going inward and starting to take apart internalized narratives of white supremacy and patriarchy is is really crucial. And someone like Kevin Kwashi says, you know, we can be um, celebrated for our protests and we can actually make some strides. We can feel a sense of community, but we also have to honor our feelings. Mm. However rudimentary or mundane that might seem to actually give ourselves permission to feel and to actually honor those feelings, but to also start to internalize new narratives and messages, I think is, it's a life's work and it's a very powerful work. So to hear you say, you could hear that in Toni Morrison, you know, who has strident critiques of how we internalize the male gaze, the mm-hmm. white gaze, and, and how she can also really deeply affirm black being, black community, mm-hmm. It's very, it's so beautiful. I feel like Audre Lorde has this in a number of her essays and speeches in particular, that honoring and and just the fact that she says it's really, really hard work. She does not minimize. If you look at her essays in Sister Outsider, she does not minimize how hard it is. And if you look at her essay, Eye to Eye, where she talks about black women and hatred, 
she has this whole passage in there about how we have to mother ourselves. And there's so much compassion in it. It's so beautiful. She says, yes, we have to turn towards ourselves and offer ourselves those survival skills, but also that really deep love and attention. And then it ripples outward. And she talks about how she wants to do that with other Black women and how she does. So starting with ourselves and having it be a kind of natural way of being then in community with other people within our families. I really think that is that is a message we get. And not just focusing on skill building or external work, but also what it means to, I'm going to use the expression of one of my mentors, whose name is Conda Mason, just to offer yourself as a tree, like refuge and shade and shelter and relief to other people. That is such a beautiful gift and a beautiful way of being in the world. It's um, something that's not often taught, <laughs> you know, and it's, um, it's yeah, it's it's work that much. And I remember the first time I read um, Lauren's essay, I, the, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I, I don't think I understood, or maybe I just, I was like, this can't, this is, no. <laughs> I remember, I was like, no, just, I don't get it. <laughs> but then, you know, sometimes you just have to go back to things. Um, and that's the beauty of text, something you can read over the course of your life. I am so interested in reading what, really, what most professors have read from the beginning of their year to 30 to 40 years down. Um, and how it changes every time you teach it, every time you you know you look at it. If different things go on in your life, what what other knowledges does the text bring out to you? Um, with each and every single time you read it, the silences and um, I really like how you and you differentiate this um, the the difference between silence and quiet. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that was that was powerful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I'm indebted to a friend of mine, Zenju Earthland Williams, or Manuel, pardon me, who um, turned me on to Kevin Kwashi's work. And yeah, it was a, a, a beautiful way, I think, to frame this book. And, and I was very intentional about starting with Black voices and not framing the book in response to white convert Buddhism, but actually saying we're building off of of narratives that have already been articulated within within the diaspora. And so while you bring in, um, you know, Audre Lords and James Baldwin, and it's, it's cool I sent you those questions and you're gonna write a book. <laughs> so uh-huh. like, oh wow, look at that, because it's 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 there's um there's a connection there. So you mentioned um, the compilation of five aggregates of body, feeling, sensation, perception, mental formation, and consciousness, and how um, Lord's writing and James Baldwin really speak to the sensational aspect. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? And I feel like if this is probably going to like a, a segue to your, <laughs> to your new book, I don't know, but um, I'm curious to hear you speak more on that. Yes, I... I, I have um, deeply internalized their voices. And I think one of the most powerful aspects of their work, I mean, they wrote on so many different dimensions, but one of the most powerful aspects, I think, is the fact that they turned to sexuality and sensuality and erotic energy. And they privileged that in their own lives, 
but they also saw it as a way to resist the repressive environment created in white supremacist spaces, that they, they explicitly saw that embrace of sensuality as resistance to white supremacy and really thought of themselves on their own terms. And part of that was embracing same gender relationships. And, you know, they were embracing same gender relationships, both of them at a time when it was not accepted. Mm. And it especially was not accepted in black activist communities. You know, they and they speak to this very directly, both of them. And in some cases, especially Baldwin, they were really reviled. So they were able to stand against the dominant culture within Black activist spaces and assert themselves, as well as stand in the broader society and assert their sexualities. And And it's not just sexuality for both of them. It's a deeper kind of energy. It's a deeper attunement to who they are. And it's respecting how they feel and it's respecting the fact that joy, Black joy, is important and it's worth honoring and making space for and living into. So it is one part of the book. Um, they also talk a lot about suffering. They talk about compassion. They talk about delusion. They talk about impermanence, both of them. I mean, there's a lot in their work, but it is true that that kind of way forward for both of them was honoring their bodies and honoring the energies of their bodies. And, and I don't, I'm not a scholar of the Tibetan tradition. I don't know a lot about Tibetan Buddhism, but the little that I do know, and it's actually broader than Tibetan Buddhism. It's called Vajrayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's um, in places beyond Tibet, but we have many Tibetan texts that are Vajrayana texts that speak to enlightenment in this um, embodied energetic way. And it's, um, it's really quite powerful. So I am still learning, but what I would argue, and I know I'm not alone, is that they are two Black writers who illuminate that orientation mm -hmm. in the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition. And so I would say it's also a way of understanding those particular teachings, to read their works, mm. to understand those particular teachings in a more direct way within this particular context. And the other thing I know that I mentioned earlier, but I wanted to expand on is another way of honoring ancestors by also honoring the land. But and, and I think this is a little bit in connection to the the ceremonies and the rituals um but of the dancing and the bowing um as a way of honoring the body but also the land and i like yeah. that connection and i can't remember where i read this from but i do remember it's something about being barefoot and also walking to like walking on earth and walking on land as a way of like connecting um, but you kind of go more deeper than that, which is necessary. <laughs> and um, so can you speak to us about how it is this, it, you know, the Black American tradition and history is, it's, it's an atrocious relationship to the land, but there's a need to heal this relationship. Um, yeah, so can you tell us a little more about that and 
There was something else I was going to say that just crossed, that, that just left my mind. I guess an ancestor took it away. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I do think for a lot of the Black teachers and practitioners I interviewed in this book that healing the relationships and, and really being able to honor the earth in very direct ways has been critical and central to their practices. I, this is absolutely true for me as well. So I think forests are safe spaces for many of these teachers and practitioners. Um, I think being connected to the land through tilling the land, through gardening, you know, um, being able to move from beyond the historical construct of the field worker, the slave, and being able to um, you know, disassemble or deconstruct the meaning of those images and actually find joy in being connected to the land has been really important. I also think that some of what we talked about with Devin's practices and the retreats that Devin, Noliwe Alexander, Rosetta Saunders, and Jara Williams, they re- lead these retreats called Deep Time Liberation. And a lot of that work is, is going to the land, going to plantations. They take groups, but also just being on the land in a different way and doing somatic practices. And I think some of that work truthfully is understanding our bodies as part of this landscape. So the more that we can turn to our bodies and have a much more, I would say, uh, soft or compassionate relationship to our bodies, that can extend outward to this land that has been so brutally exploited in the same ways many of the same ways that Black bodies were exploited. And to be able to have a a different approach, not one of horror Mm -hmm. or where those histories are remembered in such integral ways, but one of, okay, this is the harm. Can I turn towards it and just bring some compassionate energy towards it? And then not live out of those patterns of rejection, mm. right? There was so much flight. And for for absolutely understandable reasons, I mean, just thinking about 70 years of the Great Migration, of leaving the Deep South mm. in which, you know, sharecroppers were routinely exploited, you know, lived in extraordinary conditions, were made to step off of the sidewalk and walk in a street if a white person was walking on the sidewalk, having to go to the back door to enter a house, a white family's house, or to be served in a restaurant or a store. I mean, all of those indignities for centuries, for decades then during Jim Crow segregation, you know, all of that is connected to the treatment of how Black people were enslaved. And so those remembrances are real. And they are connected to the land. And there was flight, right? There was flight from the south and from these rural areas to the north and to cities in which there was not such a connected relationship to the land. There was dense, densely populated neighborhoods, lots of concrete, a real disconnection. But I think there's starting to be a return. Uh, and, And by that, I mean a kind of going back with maybe not 
um, so much fight or flight as much as returning to ancestors and, and having some capacity to, to work with the, the really destructive meanings and maybe have different ways of understanding them. So they, there are stories, this isn't directly connected, and I don't talk about this in the book, but there are stories of now Black people moving from, you know, the crowded North to the less crowded South and the kind of, re, they call it the reverse migration. And I think that's really interesting. I don't talk about that in the book, but I think it's part of this larger factor of there's much less, um, at least overt trauma. Mm -hmm. So that there can be some capacity to return, mm -hmm. and then want to rebuild and do that work because that's I think the, so. that, that's necessary. It uh, yeah. it kind of makes me think of being in spaces where you are either taught not to be, or um, just something feels wrong in the body when you're in those spaces, and mm -hmm. it makes me think of you know Fanon when he talks about. That this this need that like the psychological trauma that black bodies go through it's a size seismic wave so it it spans generations so it's it just doesn't stop at some point you know the waves continue and mm -hmm. I don't know about you sometimes I think well why would this person think and I'm like never mind you know <laughs> it's like because you, you don't know how their families came to be and what like what was passed down from one generation but it's it's waves it's like a ripple effect. Um, so you think you're out, but you're, you know, you doesn't matter how modern, where you live, what you're wearing, <laughs> but there's, there's always like some sort of wave that will pass through, um, a black boss, some black bodies and, you know, depending on what their relationship with certain histories are. Um, because I also learned it's, you can't just assume, but I wanted to know what was your process of recording, um, and having these conversations with the with the practitioners, was everything put into the book? And what's the boundary as what was private and what was shared with us as the readers? Hmm. Well, I, the interviews were usually about an hour long. I did both in person and um, Zoom and recorded the Zoom interviews. And I then I had a very complicated Excel spreadsheet and, you know, kind of mapped out themes. I mean, really, so much was brought to my attention that I never even thought to ask about, like trauma. I mean, that just it came, or answer, it just came up over and over. So I was able to map out themes. And then I would write draft chapters. And every person interviewed or cited in the chapter was able to review their quotes chapter by chapter, and then everyone received a full version of the manuscript, everyone who's interviewed. I didn't so much do that with writings uh, that had already been published, but I did with, with any interviews and, and people could check their quotes and edit their quotes. And so there was a lot of transparency. Um, but in the interviews, really, I don't, I don't think anyone asked for certain things to be off the record. Um, they they were, they spoke very freely um, and then had the opportunity to take things out should they want to. But I don't think anybody did. I think it was more grammatical corrections or clarifications. 
Okay. I'm always interesting about the process of, you know, when you have these conversations. But so when you were writing this book, I don't know if you had a particular audience in mind. And I know you mentioned how when you have these conversations in class, which I'm curious, hopefully one day I can sit in and like, listen, it would be really interesting to if you could if you wrote a book on the different conversations you have in class over a span of like a decade and how students respond to these, um, to when you're, to this, to this book. But did you have a sort of imagined reader and something that you would want readers to take away from this book, if anything? Like one thing, of, I, I took away feelings. I took away the feeling mm -hmm. of, I don't think I can describe it yet because I think I'm still processing it. But it's a, when I look at your book, I think of a feeling of um, meditation, but not meditation in a way where you're just, it's serene, and, you know, like that picturesque, but it's meditation and reimagining and reconnecting. And also the new thing is really leaving some ancestors alone. And I think mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave that there. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's very helpful to know. So the imagined reader really, I think, were, you know, for me was someone like yourself. Um, I, I have a, a, an advisee who was a student of mine last semester, and I did a, like a book group with incoming students in my new workplace, the Buddhism and Interreligious Engagement Program at Union Theological Seminary. It was right before the semester started. And this young, well, he's not young, he's an adult, but um, one of the students who is a Black male-bodied student said, I feel like this book was written for me. And I said, this book was written for you. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, anyone who is at least somewhat interested in that kind of interiority you referenced. Um, I started thinking about vanguard activists, but as I did my interviews, it, it really grew. The sense of who this book might, might be oriented towards became much broader. But really, you know, even in the dedications, I mentioned a few people who are particularly important. I mentioned my broader community of Black Buddhist teachers and long-term practitioners um, there were a couple of gatherings. Uh, it was Buddhist teachers of Black African descent. And so I, I referenced that. But then I say for all Black people who are interested in the Dharma, may you be inspired by this wisdom. And, and there's so much wisdom in the book. I, I, uh, I'm not at all self-promotional when I say, I think this is a book worth reading. And it's because of the voices in the book because of the wisdom that is articulated and because you have the sense in the presence of these teachers that they embody what they say, which is quite rare, I think. There's yeah. such a depth of authenticity, but you know it, you feel it. It's, it's an energy and it's pervasive. So, so yes, it was, it, was, it was that reader, it was you and Raphael and, you know, so so many others. And also I did a, a book group with a Tree Ratna community that's global coming out of the Ambedkarite Buddhist movement in India. And it was so interesting to hear people all around the world. They wrote me messages, but they also had all these verbal 
um, messages for me. And, you know, they were of many, many different backgrounds, but all people of color and, you know, could really see themselves in the book, even though this is specific to Black Buddhists in the United States and Canada, one person in Canada. But it was actually amazing to see that there were Buddhists of color, different traditions of different nationalities and cultures all around the world who were resonating with it. It was really, it was very powerful. Yeah, that 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 must have done something as a reader. <laughs> you know, it's, um, and I think it's, there's some things I don't think I'll get until later, maybe because I, I don't want to crack down, which I'll be honest, I'll be like, I'm, I'm not ready <laughs> to look into that. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's definitely something that everyone should read. Um, and then it helps you see how you can connect with other people and yes. understand people at a different level. But <laughs> I think so. And to return that question to you, how did you walk away from the book? I know you shared with us, um, but I was told, because I haven't written my first book, but the process of writing, um, it changes you, it's transformational, but how did this, this is this is like on a spirit this is on so many on a lot of levels <laughs> but how did how did you walk away from this book are you did you walk away from this book that's I think that's a question <laughs> well it's a it's a it's a multi-layered yeah. question so one is <laughs> I I'm a parent of young children so when I talk about developing capacity I think, so much of my awareness is that I have a lot of constraints in my life. And so I just say that because when I was copy editing, I just did not have enough time. And when the published version came out, I thought, oh my goodness, I wish I could have copy edited thoroughly one more time. And that was actually my knee jerk reaction of like, oh my goodness, I just needed yet another week and another set of eyes. And the message, the message is plural, but particularly that message of being able to turn towards our suffering and work with it skillfully, the, the need to really privilege that in our lives, not just jump on the train of professional success or, you know, trying to find a partner and establish a family, you know, as we're so often told is what we should be doing. You know, there's, um, there are so many messages that we just grow up thinking, you know, we need to know what we're doing with our lives and we have a biological clock that's ticking and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and the message is really actually, if we can take that time and actually step off that train or step off that bandwagon and really try to know our own rhythms on a deeper level and honor those rhythms in a deep way, that we have much more to offer, first to ourselves, but also to those who are around us. We're more authentic. And I love that Buddhism starts with this fact of impermanence of all phenomena and the fact of suffering, because if we can actually really know that and embrace that, we just let go of our clutching and our need to be in control on a certain level. And I think we are able to create some ease in environments that are very high pressure. We live in such an incredibly high pressure 
environment and you're in the academy so you also know this intimately and you know we march to deadlines and we perform constantly and i think it's it's really debilitating and i think on some level we might be repressing or avoiding something when we are willing to let that dictate our lives so what does it mean then to hear another voice and maybe even embrace silence and that voice is your own voice and that silence is the absence of noise what does it mean to actually really settle and to be still i have a friend um, whose name is josen tamori gibson and josen likes to say there is movement and stillness i think about that a lot so stillness doesn't mean no movement but it does mean stepping back from that high pressure environment and it does mean stepping back from those narratives and just letting them settle and maybe being able to have some relief and the capacity to heal you know to really go inward to prioritize that even if you don't make money from it or get an award or get a degree or get a promotion or you know advance in some professional or external way and yet i think that work that deep healing work is really what serves us all in ways that are so much more important and profound so i came away from the book and i am doing that this week as i work through my my grief around my father passing 11 weeks ago you know just to create some softness. And I I am someone, I mean I have many degrees. I still have a lot of student debt. You know, I have been professionally successful by all of these external markers. I absolutely know what it's like to be in that movement and when I sit every morning and I can feel how much I've internalized a certain level of expectation and pressure, just come back to can I create some softness around this? Can I create some relief around this can i serve my nervous system in a different way can i relate to this in a different way and it's a daily practice absolutely i could speak to you for another hour and that it would turn into a <laughs> turn into a public therapy session <laughs> but i understand that so too much, um, <laughs> and yeah there's you really you've ended it quite nicely and i think um we all deserve to heal our nervous systems that's that's for sure but thank you so much and definitely looking forward to <laughs> i like how i ended with more work but <laughs> <laughs> but you know whenever whenever you're ready um if ever and even if it's uh, just come on and just want to have a conversation about the book you're writing <laughs> but i uh, would love to have you back on but thank you so much for making this time and having this conversation My pleasure. Thank you also. Thank you.